Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Among the beach-dirty wannabes of South Beach walked a serial killer, police said, who murdered Gianni Versace in the front steps of his Mediterranean mansion. Uh, Mr. Versace, of course, one of the world's top fashion designers, whose designs are famous uh, in all the big fashion centers, such as Paris, Rome, and London. This was a single white male who approached uh, Mr. Versace as he was uh, about to enter the gates. Andrew Cunanan is now a target himself. Who is he? Welcome to Still Watching Versace, a podcast about the FX series American Crime Story, The Assassination of Gianni Versace. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair critic Richard Lawson. This week we'll be discussing season two, episode five, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, directed by Daniel Minahan, written by, as ever, by Tom Rob Smith. Uh, before we dive into the epo- episode itself, and then later we will get to an interview with actor Finn Whitrock, who plays Jeff Trail in the series. I wanted to first ask you, Richard, um, it's funny, this episode was the episode I was referring to as the Don't Ask, Don't Tell episode before I realized that that was actually the episode title. Yeah. Um, so I, I, this is really, I would say, the first time outside of maybe the aids diagnosis episode that that this really feels like an issue episode for the show centered around one um very highly publicized element of being closeted and gay in the 90s and i I was just wondering what what your memory of knowing about don't ask don't tell when i think we were in like middle school or younger when it first was enacted and and then your thoughts about this episode as a whole um i don't really remember what i thought about it back then i mean i think that in my household anyway it was spoken about as this kind of ridiculous rule that didn't really make any practical sense um i think it was parodied parodied on the simpsons once which was sort of my touchstone for any sort of political discourse when i was a kid (laughs) um which it was for many people i think um probably explains a lot about me but um but yeah, so I so I don't, you know, it, it obviously it's such a '90s term. I mean, it carried over beyond that clearly. But um, 
So I think it was interesting to watch, you know, this show address something head on like that. Um, I think it's successful. I think there we'll we'll get into it, but I think there are parts where it's a little heavy handed, maybe. Um, mm. But you know, this is a heavy show. Um, but I think that what Tom Rob Smith does really elegantly, as he does in other episodes, particularly last week's, um, is take that heavy handedness and sort of temper it with a, an unexpected humanity or sort of nuance that. Um, you know, otherwise uh, would it kind of tethers it to, to to the ground in a way, which is is key to this show, not just being completely over the top. Right. Yeah. I um I was refreshing myself on on Maureen Orris' book before we we started today because you know it had been a little while since I read the book and and rewatched the episode and my memory was we talked a lot of last week about how much editorializing the show had to do or or invention the show had to do um with David Madsen's story because there were no eyewitnesses um Jeff Trail's story in this episode is also very um fictionalized i think to suit sort of the theme of the episode the don't ask don't tell theme um but in fact, I was just refreshing myself on this. In fact, Jeff Trail was not like drummed out of the service uh, because of his homosexuality, at least from the investigation that Maureen did. And she talked to his family, his friends, all these people. Uh, it weren't, there were a couple other incidences like, uh, Jeff giving a superior officer, officer a game of clue and telling him he, like, we, we, we decided you never have a clue. So here's the clue, like, game board. He did that. And then he also got in trouble with the EPA for, like, storing paint cans. So, like, there were these other reasons why Jeff's career in the military spun out. It's not as tied to his homosexuality the way this episode sort of pitches it. There's no kid getting beat with soap. There's no, you know, Jeff, uh, wishing he left the kid to die in order to preserve his anonymity in the service. So, you know, the, this is a lot of invention and, and, and Finn Winrock gets into that a little bit um, when we discuss, uh, when we'll talk to him later in, in the episode. But um, I was wondering if you had any feelings about that, Richard, about them taking someone uh, who was a real person and seriously changing um, known facts about him. Yeah, it feels a little risky, doesn't it? Because if you can poke holes in it, then then it leaves room for criticism in a broader sense, right? You know, like, if one thing is off, then maybe the whole thing is off. Right. Um, that said, um, this is narrative television, you know, it's not a documentary. Um, and I think that what they do with the scenes of Jeff in the um, in the Navy, while again, maybe a little on the nose at points, um they illuminate something that, you know, I just not two minutes ago called the policy silly, you know, what, what, a, what an impractical thing, but like it all, it really harmed people's lives in, in, in profoundly, you know, emotional ways. And I think that, um, showing that what that life was like, um, in all of its sort of, I mean, I guess you could arguably say melodrama, um, yeah. is important, I think, to understanding, you know, in the same way that OJ illuminated some recent history for us, um, that, you know, that it's good to, it's good to remember this stuff, um, even if it is, uh, it requires some, you know, uh, let's say narrative gymnastics or acrobatics or something. Right. And, uh, something that Finn said in his interview is that, you know, I don't want to speak for him. You guys will hear it yourself, but, but just this idea that I think he thought, covering don't ask don't tell would be sort of a little too musty and in the past and like sort of right when he was making a decision of whether or not to do the show um 
the Trump administration started saying some pretty uh, inflammatory things about trans people in the military. And, and Fenway Rock was like, ah, yes, we have not come so very far. Then this right. will be a very topical thing for us to discuss. So um, there's all of that. And um, I just wanted to mention one more thing before we dive into the sort of scene by scene recap, which is I was talking to Brad Simpson last week after um, – the episode House by the Lake. And we were talking about that Amy Mann performance that you and I discussed on the podcast. And I think it was you, Richard, who brought up the idea of it being um, Lynchian. And Brad Simpson agreed with that. And he said, in fact, each episode of American Crime Story was patterned after a film, like a film served as a mood piece for each mm. um, episode. And so last week was the Lynch episode for them. And uh, I think the one next week that we'll be discussing about, he mentioned American Gigolo as an, an as an inspiration. I could see that immediately. He didn't tell me what this one was, but the one I came up with was a uh, whole metal jacket, uh, mostly sure, because yeah. of these shots of the barracks and um, Jeff sort of in his undershirt and his underwear in the bathroom, like late at night and stuff like that just seemed very, very Kubrick, very full metal jacket to me. So um those yeah, I think that's apt. Mood pieces. That or Officer or Gentleman. We'll get to that a little later on. And, but, and, um, and this is the episode yeah. where um, uh, Darren Chris is replaced by Vincent D'Onofrio in the Cunanan role. So that correct, the comp- comparison makes even more sense. Vincent D'Onofrio, that chameleon, just it's disappears amazing. in the role. He looks exactly <laughs> like Chris, but it is Vincent D'Onofrio, guys, going forward. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, so, okay, so let's dive into the episode. We start with the Versace's. We have not seen them in two episodes. Uh, and so the show is like, oh, yeah, Versace's in the name of um, the show title. Maybe we should show some Versace's. So we, we also get... have this Oscar-winning actress who we've <laughs> yeah. got lying around. Yeah. Maybe we should use it. So we've got Johnny telling Donatella, uh, Johnny and Antonio telling Donatella that Gianni's going to give an interview with the advocate uh, where he is going to come out. This is a real thing that happened and it was a huge deal. Um, Richard, what did you think of this rich Versace argument scene? I, I like the scene. I think that it it's kind of gave uh, Cruz a, a lot to, to, to work with, which is good because we, we, she's been used pretty sparingly um, at this point. Um, and I thought that her argument, um, while I disagreed with her i liked that it didn't make her this kind of just homophobic person or whatever it was it was it was practical um Mm -hmm. and i mean it's terrible and it's its own kind of tragedy that 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 those kind of practical concerns have had to and still have to come into someone coming out or whatever but um you know i think it was well articulated and um revealed more about her uh, and I think Cruz is great in the performance. Yeah, the um, the argument she's giving, which is that you know the Versace House of Versace is trying to open stores in countries where homosexuality is considered illegal. Um, you know, what will this do to our brand? She mentioned a designer, Perry Ellis, uh, who died in the mid eighties, who sort of collapsed from what many believe is sort of gay related illness, um, on the runway of one of his shows and, and how, how much his, his, uh, personal brand was damaged by that. And, and this whole discussion really does help inform 
the the things we've already seen about the Versace family, them listing the company on the New York Stock Exchange, their fear of what certain pieces of information, like perhaps an AIDS, AIDS or HIV diagnosis for Gianni would meet for the brand. So this is her more explicitly articulating some of those fears that we've already seen her um, sort of refer to more obliquely uh, in earlier episodes. Yeah. And I think it also offers an interesting window into the idea or the fact that um like hollywood um fashion uh poses as very progressive and um all you know inclusive um but there it's it's actually or at least certainly back then i mean it, it could be a pretty homophobic place because not inwardly necessarily but that too but because they had this outward facing business to be concerned about um you you would sort of stereotypically think of fashion as being you know a pretty gay and gay friendly place and it is pretty gay but um I, the industry has long been pretty cagey about that fact. In the past 24 hours or so, Richard, you and I have both written articles for Vanity Fair about the figure skater Adam Rippon, along with a with a snowboarder, the first openly gay man to compete for the um, Team USA in the Olympics. And I was just doing like a, I did like a superficial dive into, like it blew my mind that there had been no out gay men uh, in the figure skating world because yep. um, of all these, you know, figures we know like Brian Boitano or Johnny Weir, who are just like so unquestionably gay. How is this the first one? And then I was sort of reading what Brian Boitano and Johnny Weir said about like, even in the seemingly gay friendliest sport in the world, which would be males, figures, you know, men's figure skating that they like had these obstacles. Of course they did, you know? And, um, you know, Brian Boitano was big in the 90s, uh, Johnny Weir in the mid um, aughts. Scott Hamilton, who's a straight man, male figure skating legend, was saying that he was homophobic um, or, con- you know, he considered his attitude homophobic because he was called gay all the time for being a figure skater and that he said he like pushed that anger outwards towards some of the gay men in his field. And so... um I was just thinking I was thinking of this show as I was looking into that and like exactly this, this idea that the fashion industry or figure skating, these these traditionally gay friendly uh, outlets were still so closed off to being open about who you were as recently as, you know, the 90s, the aughts. Um, yeah. And a lot of times the 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 culture, the mindset is not to embrace or lean into the the kind of you know the the disproportionate amount of gay people in in your field but to to say well no i mean look at all these butch figure skaters like look at you know like um that's the kind of ideal to strive for like can you believe he's a figure skater but he's also masculine i kind of think of the way that evan lysacek was um juxtaposed to johnny weir uh in 2010 um when Evan won the gold medal um you know anyway we we could let's do another podcast about figure skating but okay (laughs) I mean, this whole discussion just really underlines what a big, bold move it was for Versace to appear in The Advocate. And we'll get into that scene later in the episode. Um, and this is this is an attempt to run a parallel narrative between Jeff Trail's uh, interview with CBS's 48 Hours and Versace's interview with The Advocate and sort of what those two expressions of gayness at this time meant. Um before we get there, we flash back or flash forward in time to April 24th, 1997, four days before Jeff is murdered. Um, 
We see Andrew Sweet talking the credit card company into extending his line of credit so he can get to Minneapolis and says Jeff owes him thousands. This is another little perhaps nod to uh, Maureen Orr's book because saying Jeff owes him thousands sounds like just some insane thing that Andrew would create. But there's an implication in Maureen's book that Jeff might have been somewhat involved in the drug trade and um, he might have owed Andrew that money, actually. Uh, so that, that doesn't really um, go with the Jeff we see in this episode, but that is – there are some sort of, as we discussed with David Madsen last week, some some shading on these characters that we're not necessarily seeing. Yeah, and uh, but I think it's okay if the show chooses to avoid that. You know, it's the same sort of thing where, you know, one of these, you know, some – kid will be shot by the police and then everyone will say oh but he was no angel you know he did this he had a shop it's like that right. shouldn't matter that doesn't matter like what matters is that you know is the story that that the show is telling in in in, in terms of the themes it's trying to address anyway yeah th- no that's absolutely absolutely true no matter what jeff was doing um you know his death is a tragedy and and completely unjust um we see Andrew doing some serious drugs, uh, crystal meth, most likely, living in a terrible apartment. We see him pack everything to go on this trip. So this really does feel like he has hinged everything, like his entire future, on what he feels like, whatever his definition of success of this trip is. He's hinged it all on that. And we see this little weird little shrine to Gianni or slash murder wall, uh, including the advocate spread, sort of pasted up in the back of his closet. We cut to Jeff doing his non-military job and he gets defensive about why he's no longer in the military. And um, Jeff gets the news that Andrew's in him at the airport. What did you think of the scene with um, Jeff at the factory? Um, I thought it was good. I mean, I, I think that uh, Finn Whitrock is a good actor. Um, I think that, uh, you know, again, with things being a little bit narratively convenient or on the nose, like that he had this con this particular conversation the day he finds out that Andrew's in town, you know, it all kind of fits in a little, maybe too neatly. Um, but then again, you know, they only have so many minutes to tell this, to, to tell a, a complete s- story and to address these big themes. So um, I can forgive them that. Yeah. Finn's uh, or sorry, uh, Jeff's repeated insistence. Like it was my decision to leave you know, yelling at this guy that he works with uh, yeah. to leave the Navy um, makes it seem like, you know, what the what the episode is implying, which is that he was drummed out for reasons to do with his sexuality. Um, but, it, you know, Jeff, Jeff Trail did indeed leave the Navy and, uh, you know, signed up to train to be a California Highway Patrolman for a little while before that uh, went south, I think, perhaps for these drug reasons. But um, it was his decision to leave. And then we get so so I, I was talking to Finn Whitrock a little bit about, the, about this. And I know you talked to Cody Fern about this last week in terms of what order did they shoot everything in? Because... Um, You've got the murder and then you've got everything that comes after that, which is before it, you know, like what order did they shoot in? Uh, it seemed like they were sort of shooting here, there and everywhere. Um, but I don't find it a shock to see Jeff alive and well in this episode because we had so little time with him in the last episode. But when he walks into the airport and Cody Furness, David Madsen is there alive and well after the horrible journey we went on with him last week, that does come as like a shock. To me, like there's yeah. David and he's alive and he's fine, you know? Yeah, it is. It, but it's effective. I mean, I think they did that, you know, that's, that's part of the bigger thing of working backwards and all that. Absolutely. You know? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so, you know, when David says stuff like he feels sorry for Andrew, um, you know, there's all this ominous fate hanging over it, right? Um, and then uh, Darren Chris shows up as Andrew calls everyone the three amigos. Jeff brings up this weird thing that did actually happen, which is that um, Andrew Kinnanen sent a postcard to Jeff's father, Stan Trail, um, sort of saying like XOXO Drew, uh, effectively outing Jeff to his father in a certain degree. Um, I think it's a, it's a weird thing that actually happened that like, I guess was Andrew sort of threatening Jeff or whatever it was just another like crazy, terrible thing that Andrew Kinnanen did to his friends, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and further, as you say, like intentional eeriness as they walk into David's apartment and David is just like on the floor greeting his dog. Um, and Andrew gives David a watch and, and he proposes to David. It's all like terrible and upsetting. And he says, all I need is someone to be a new person for. So this really was Andrew, all of his chips on the table, just hoping to, find the connection, find a reason to keep going, to reinvent himself, to do everything, you know. And uh Yeah, and and the show yeah. this episode is building towards something that we'll we'll talk about soon. Um there's a one particular line that I want to talk about. Um but like basically they're they're if we haven't had it before, this is the episode that's really setting up Andrew as this this figure that 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 causes all this kind of consternation for the people who know him, because on the one hand, they want to be polite. They don't want to just outright reject him. Maybe they're a little creeped out by him. Um, and, you know, there's a human part of us, even in the audience watching and we, that we want to sympathize that it's like, oh, God, he proposed. And, you know, of course not. That's a crazy idea. And you feel bad for him in a kind of weird way. But you also see how he none of it was real and it was all supposed to be on his terms. And he was basically just continuously trying to railroad people through manipulation and emotional manipulation and maybe financial, you know? Um, And, and so you, it makes you just see what a sort of pathetic character he is. Um, And this is the episode I think where you really hate him. Um, But then interestingly in further episodes, that that softens some. So I just think that like as a psychological arc, this is maybe the peak of it uh, in some ways uh, or the valley of it. Um, and I just think that this, this particular scene, which is so uncomfortable, establishes that really well, as does the airport scene. Yeah, the peak of your frustration with him, right? Like, right. you hate him. It's a peak of it's like, I can't watch this guy on screen anymore. And then I think it gets... Um, well, I think we'll get to that scene that you keep alluding to, but it, it gets to a place where you, then you do feel for him. And then as we go back in time, I found myself feeling more and more. But anyway, um, then we, we get to Jeff at his, like his super pregnant sister's house. And this is, we talked before about the, um, way in which the episodes have to be really efficient. We talked about specifically with the Miglins in terms of introducing things. And for Jeff, you have to get in like his entire military history. And then as well as 
this sense of his connection to his family. We got David Madsen's connection to his family last week, but this sense of Jeff as like a beloved son, a beloved brother, soon to be uncle. And it's bookended really effectively with these answering machine messages that close out the episode. But here, this scene has to do a lot of work in terms of Jeff's pregnant sister, her talking about how much she wants Jeff to come out to their parents, uh, him talking about how excited he is to become an uncle. It's just one scene. Um, and it's, it's remarkably effective for establishing him in the context of, of his family life, you know? Yeah. And, you know, again, just another example, another, um, of, of how much collateral damage there was in this, you know, this, you know, rampage that Keenan went on, like that there were so many people affected by this. Maureen, um, Maureen definitely did talk to some of Jeff's sisters for the book. That's not true of every, you know, she didn't talk to every family member, but she definitely has the trail family sort of in her book. So I really recommend reading that. And then we get Andrew and David and David friend, David's friend Linda in this poker bar. We didn't mention last week that Linda, who we saw in the hallway of David's apartment, uh, in, in a house by the lake, uh, is played by Sophie Van Hasselberg, who is, of course, Bette Midler's daughter. And you can tell things you can tell just by looking at her. Um, but she's great in this, you know, little role. And, um, yeah, she is good. I think it's strange that she's in the Hello Dolly costume for all of it. I, I don't really know what stylistically. The feathers, what. the feathers and polka really go together, right? <laughs> That's now, true. So. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, and, you know, we get, we get some nice, um, a nice, topical timely lie from andrew this is true that andrew for a time was going around and saying that he built sets for titanic in mexico but that really firmly establishes us in 1997 uh where andrew claims he is working for james cameron down in mexico he spoiler alert he was not um (laughs) and we get david sort of trying to let Andrew down as easy as can, but this exasperation. And that's, that's a question, you know, a question last week's episode had to ask, had to answer was why did Andrew go on the road? Why did David go on the road so long with Andrew? The question this episode has to answer is why are David Madsen and Jeff trail who seem like reasonable humans still letting Andrew into their lives? Why is he staying with David one night? Why is he staying at Jeff's place another night? Like, how how could they have put up with his bullshit for this long? And I think this episode doesn't, you know, Jeff seems done, but still let you know feels a debt to Andrew and still lets Andrew stay in his home. David also feels kind of done, but also sorry for him and extends one last olive branch. He's like, it's okay to admit that you're in trouble. It's okay to admit you're unhappy. Like, you don't have to buy watches and pretend that everything's fine. Like... We can help you. Yeah. And Andrew, of course, is is so far down the rabbit hole of his own delusion that he can't accept that that genuine seeming offer. But um, that does seem in keeping with the characterization of David we know from the show, which is like he's done with him to a certain degree, but unwilling to sort of just completely leave him out in the cold. Yeah, well, because you know? he's a compassionate human being, you know, it's really yeah. hard. And you just it's so sad watching the, all of that compassion uh, be so manipulated and, you know, ultimately destroyed. Um, there is a little bit in the polka scene that I wanted to talk about quickly, oh, yeah. um, which is uh, when he grabs David and starts dancing with him. And you're mm-hmm. thinking, okay, you're in Minnesota in the 90s. And the look on David's face is that and he immediately kind of you know clenches and, and like pulls back because it's like no you can't just dance with another man at this polka bar whatever um and it reminded me of something when i was uh i don't know 26 or something i went to a wedding in philly with f- friends of mine and um 
There are a lot of gay friends, uh, you know, and including the bride's best friend. And, you know, after the reception, whatever, or during the reception, we're dancing, whatever. And I grabbed her friend and started dancing with him. And I found out later that he was horrified because oh. he was out, but like not in front of my friend's family. And like, I mean, they all knew, but like he'd never like met, brought a guy to, to meet them or anything like that. And it's just those kind of like little social things that maybe people we don't think about that, you know, speak volumes about how gay people have to kind of socialize and, you know, tamp themselves down and, you know, not hold hands in public or not dance with a man. I don't know. I just thought that was a really finely observed detail in that, in the, in that episode that Cody Fern really did well. Yeah. And it speaks to something that you were talking about last week, which is like, it's one thing to be out to this circle of people, right. but not feel comfortable being out to the wide world. Yeah. Um, and then that's perhaps something that, that David Madsen, or at least this version of David Madsen is very preoccupied with. And something also that, um, Jeff is is even more concerned with his yeah. his the circle of people he is is comfortable being gay in front of is very small. Yeah. Um. And so we get to this scene of Andrew in Jeff's apartment. We see a photo of Jeff with David and Prince, which once again leads into this illusion the show is making that has no basis in reality, which is that you know maybe Jeff and David were involved romantically, perhaps some way. Um, Andrew starts rifling through everything, finds the dress uniform, puts a hat on, then sits down and puts in the tape and starts watching this CBS news program, 48 Hours on Gays in the Military, which actually does exist. Uh, Jeff Trail did get an, give an interview for this CBS news program. And uh, Finn told me that, like, he he just listened to that on repeat to sort of get into the mindset of Jeff Trail. And Andrew finds the gun. Ames has gone on the screen and we hear a gunshot as we transition to the next thing. But uh, what did you think of this? I mean, it's not a device because it is a true thing that exists, but we don't know, you know, that Andrew sat down and watched the 48 hours tape. But sort of what, what do you think of this as as a device for this particular story? Yeah, I mean, again, there is all this kind of, you know, sort of like coincidence or convergence or whatever, um, you know, uh, like that that Andrew watches this video and then we see the taping of the interview, you know, it all kind of fits in very neatly, but I, I don't mind. I mean, the, the shooting that, I mean, the implication is he shoots the TV. It's this, it's a, I don't believe he doesn't shoot the TV cause the TV's intact later. Right. It's just, he aims the gun and then we hear the gunshot, but like, Oh, it's, it's like an not, arty thing. Maybe they're not. Yeah. yeah it's just yeah. Um, a transition noise. It's not something that actually happens. I mean, if, yeah. if nothing else, I mean, not to get on a political soapbox, this is a good example of do not keep guns in the home. <laughs> sorry, sorry, but anyway. Yeah. I mean, and Andrew Kananen could wander in and then. Yeah, where will then, you go yeah. from there? Um, but this is the gun that he used to kill David, to um, kill Versace, kill Versace, and and um, and the victim right before Versace, William Reese. So you know that that gun has some traveling to do. Um, but before we get to that, we flash further back in time to November 1995, two years before the murder. We see Jeff on board uh, the USS Gridley in San Diego. We see a uh, gay, um, you know, member of the military getting beat up. One of one of Jeff's, you know, Jeff had 42 men under his command. So one of the men that Jeff had under his command, Jeff breaks with a fight. Later that night, we see the men sort of attack this same um, gay soldier in his bed using soap in socks. 
is this something from Full Metal Jacket? Uh, I think it happens think it, in that, or, or maybe a few good men. Isn't isn't that the code red? Okay, yeah, you know? okay, the code red. Thank you. I was like, it might be, it might be a few good men as well. Anyway, I learned this from the mov- movies. I was not surprised to see so in socks. Uh, right. And we see this this kid who like clearly has um, internal injuries, sort of sitting in in this bathroom and Jeff touches him in a way like gently on the side of his face in a way to sort of silently let the soldier know he's also gay and he comforts him and, and they're seen. Um, yeah. I was thinking, think? I think that's yeah. a really nice scene. I think that the, the kid is a good actor and uh, you know, it's interesting watching stuff like this or either period pieces or stuff in such, you know, regimented communities like the military um, because I've never lived in a, any sort of community or society, you know, microcosm that, that required me to use all of this coding that a lot of gay people have to use or had to use, you know, in the past, um, to sort of communicate to each other. Um, and so I always find it really fascinating how that's sort of calibrated on screen, you know, whether it's Carol or this, you know, um, and I think that this is really well done. I think that, that relief of knowing the comfort of knowing just the, 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 the shift in the air when he just, you know, that his touch changes, you know, it just, it's very, um, it's very potent. Um, and, but, and it's a small moment, but it speaks volumes about how these men had to live, you know, in many cases, their entire lives. And there's, because they're seen in this moment, the next scene where Jeff is sitting down with other officers and, one of them, um, who I guess saw Jeff and this other, uh, young man in the, in the bathroom, even though they weren't doing anything sexual, just like the act of, of sort of gently comforting, uh, maybe a known gay soldier has put Jeff on the radar for this other guy who's taunting him, whether with facts or not, but he, you know, he basically claims that a gay soldier has been apprehended and that he'll, um, be outing other soldiers, um, there was like a cruising by, spot, right? Like a yeah, spot. By, yeah, by yeah. the use of their of the tattoo on their leg. And uh, Jeff has a Marvin the Martian tattoo on his leg, which we actually have already seen in the autopsy scene last week. But we see on him and we see him sort of try to cut at it, but sort of give up halfway through because it's uh, it's too painful. Actually, Maureen in her book did dig up this article from the Seattle-based uh publication the stranger uh where someone writes about a cruising spot in uh san diego uh on on the naval base bathroom and mentions uh someone with a like mouse tattoo on their calf so she thinks that that is uh, in reference to jeff trail um oh interesting yeah so that's that's in her book this section from from the stranger but um we see jeff getting called into the captain's quarter, given this comic book um, about don't ask, don't tell about protecting our code of contact, uh, protecting the code of conduct of the Navy. Um, I don't know if it's clear if the captain knows Jeff is gay and this is a coded signal to him uh, or if just him having to have this conversation is just sends him over the edge. But we see Jeff in the bathroom reading the comic at night, which is what, like red is really full metal jacket to me. And then in the morning uh, he dresses in his uniform, he gets it spotless and he tries to kill himself in the bathroom um, by hanging by his belt, which um, someone in officer or gentleman does that. So that's what made me think of officer and gentleman, but he does not kill himself. This is the like, this is the part where the fictionalized storytelling does give me slight pause because there is no indication that Jeff trail tried to kill himself. And I, uh, at least in Maureen's research. And I think that that is a, um, 
don't know, that really seriously changes how we think about a character. If we think of him as like on the verge of suicide for, for much of his life and, yeah. and the way in which Jeff Trail talks to Andrew about all of this, it, it sounds like Andrew welcoming into the world of Gatum ruined Jeff's life irrevocably. I mean, I think he says as much. Um, what, what do you think of, of that? Well, it's tricky. I mean, of it. because, yeah. you know, look, suicide rates among LGBTQIA people are, are much higher than they are in the general population. So that's mm-hmm. something, if you want to talk about these issues about, like we've said several times on this show, about the, the pains of the closet, the horrors of the closet, you know, uh, then that's, and that is one element of that, that should in some ways be addressed if you want to do a, a comprehensive overview of this stuff. Um, ascribing it to this real life person who we'd have no indication that he actually tried this in his own life. That is maybe the show overstepping i think you know i think that we could have illustrated that um or they could have illustrated that in a different more subtle way maybe um you know it's no knock on whitrock's performance or anything like that i mean you know the scene is really harrowing and well staged but uh yeah i just feel like that's a maybe too big of a narrative leap to make um and it's sort of it's unfair i think maybe to you know jeff's family or whoever is watching it's interesting. You, I want to agree with you on Finwood Rock's performance because um, I, I thought I had only seen him in American Horror Story, which is just a kind of which he's so good in, especially the um, the Carnival episode, the Freak Show up season. But uh, he's tremendous in that. But that's a different. That's a different kind of acting. You know, it's so American Horror Story is so exaggerated, um, and so uh, I remember being like very pleasantly surprised by what he's putting down in this, but I had forgotten that he was in uh, a normal heart, which was another Ryan Murphy um, project uh, for HBO. And he was incredible in that too. That was also, I mean, that was very, very, yeah. uh, you know, based in reality sort of thing. So, um, uh, you know, I, I'm, I just, love what Finwood Rock does generally. And I think he's really good casting for this role. There's something just about his face. That's so, because it's so like, perfectly you know beautiful but then also just really hemmed in there's something about that that like uh whereas cody fern is just i strikes me as so wide open finwit rock at least in this role strikes me as really really hemmed in which is what you want and there's yeah and there's someone who's lived a regimented life you know there's something so clean cut about his good looks Mm -hmm. that you know it, he's he's really good at playing characters for whom emotion is very internal and maybe even suppressed, you know, because he's supposed to because he's seen in the world as this kind of one thing is this very chiseled, you know, sort of upright, handsome young man. Um, so he doesn't really want to betray that he's more than that, I guess. So I don't know, it's just an interesting, um, you know, act a lot, you know, actors have to learn how to use their looks as part of their performance. And I think that he's he's figured it out. Yeah, I agree. Um, we get the meet cute, I guess, if you want to call it that, between Andrew and Jeff. Uh, and we find out why Jeff feels like he owes Andrew a debt of gratitude, which is that, you know, Andrew sort of welcomes Jeff into his first gay club experience. This is once again an exaggeration from the show, though Andrew did sort of reportedly introduce Jeff around to a lot of handsome men and that sort of thing. He wasn't like his guardian 
angel um on on the gay scene uh as literally as as this episode depicts him to be um and then we see jeff telling andrew that he wants to do the cbs interview and andrew is angry and he says it's humiliating for jeff to be in the shadows his voice distorted with other while other um you know bigoted members of the navy can be out there sort of saying their hateful things and it once again loops back into this Andrew is like avenging angel of the closet or something. like that. I don't know. I'm like working on this thesis where it's just like, I hadn't thought about this the first time I was watching through, but all these instances of people denying who they are anger Andrew so much, which is such a weird and ironic trigger for Andrew when he is the number one, you know, deceiver. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. And there's also, I think a, an, an in, a, there's an internalized thing with that conversation um, you know, that is a, a, a version of a conversation that many gay people have had with each other about like, you know, representation and how we how we sort of are shown to the broader world or whatever. Um, but I think also there's an interesting bit um, in one of these bar scenes where uh, it's implied that in, in the in the months that he's been, you know, going out, finally comfortable going to gay bars that he's become, you know, a little bit, let's say, promiscuous um, and picking up new guys every night. And Andrew kind of asks him about it. Uh, in this almost, I don't know, kind of wistful, rueful way, uh, where you just get the impression that this jealousy has been birthed in 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 Andrew toward um, Jeff, and uh, it's an interesting thing because you know I myself have, you know, befriended people who were not in the closet, but maybe didn't know a lot of gay people or or didn't really have any presence in the gay scene, quote unquote. You know, as much as there is one. Um, and then I've watched them sort of, you know, flourish and, and you know, go off and, and have these kind of more fabulous lives than me in, in certain senses. And I so I can understand that jealousy. So it's a weird thing to um, relate to Andrew. But um, again, the show is written in such a way that, um, you know, it, it it's important that he's humanized so we can understand just how much more terrifying what he did was, I guess. Yeah, and that of all the things we've talked about so far, that strikes me as the most true to at least what Maureen Orth uncovered in terms of Andrew's. I think Andrew being, I think we've all done this, um, being sort of possessive of a shiny new friend that you're like bring into a circle and you're like, look at this like prize pony that I have found that I have brought forward for all of us. Um, you know, and Andrew brings this really handsome military man sort of into his circle. And then, yeah, and then watches that, that man have so much more success with him than he does romantically. And then feeling like angry and resentful and frustrated, um, because of all of that. Um, and then I, you know, I want to ask you how, how convincing or how natural do you feel like this cut back and forth between Johnny and Antonio giving their advocate interview and Jeff giving his interview in this sort of seedy motel to CBS? Like, what did you think of this attempt for the show to draw clear parallels? Um, it's the kind of thing where I may, I might normally say like, Oh, that's too, that's too, again, convenient, too easy too on the nose, whatever. Um, but I like it because it's doing something subtle, you know, in, but also commenting on a lot. I mean, it's, it's, it's commenting on wealth. It's commenting on privilege and power. Uh, and um, I think that, that this show uh, do, hasn't, doesn't lean into the sort of wealthy trappings of the Versace lifestyle in the way that may, many 
people maybe were expecting because of the title. It's about something much different. But I think that kind of in this episode, nodding to the fact that someone like a like a, a famous celebrity, you know, while they have they stand to lose things, obviously, uh, is is going to be likely to be much more celebrated, much more comforted, you know, much more supported um, than people who do all day, you know, or not not all day, maybe, but every day uh, do this without any sort of system of protection, do it without, um, you know, sort of built in admiration. Um, and so I think that in in showcase in highlighting that disparity, um, I think it's and, and sort of appreciating that that celebrities coming out absolutely has value and has power. But that um, it's not necessarily harder to do, let's say, than someone who doesn't have any of that apparatus around them. What I really like about this scene is that the way in which, okay, we've been talking about, I don't know, I don't know if you have, but I've been talking a lot with people about this whole, what's the news recently, which is this idea of Jude Law playing Bear with me. Jude Law playing Dumbledore in the Fantastic Beast sequel and J.K. Rowling and the author saying that Dumbledore is a gay man, but um, that that is not really going to be explored in the film. I don't mean to do anyone injustice in that paraphrasing of, of the state. But then there becomes this question of where we are in pop culture right now, which is that um, some films, big blockbuster films, are willing to say that maybe their character is gay, maybe their character is gay, or their character is gay in theory or whatever, but unwilling to show that gayness in practice. And something that I really like about this advocate interview is it's not just that Johnny Versace is giving this interview about being gay, Gay. Um, it's not just that Antonio maybe needs to step a little bit out of the shadow of uh, where he's been, but Johnny Versace is not just saying, Hey, I'm gay in theory. He's like, I'm gay in practice, and this is my partner of a long time. The, like, I'm yep. not just gay. I'm like, for I am gay. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just think that that's a really important element uh, of the whole interview. And, and anytime that you know, I've heard Ryan Murphy talk about this interview as it being a sort of seminal moment in his life. I heard Tom Rob Smith talk about it, like these these older gay men who are working on the show who, you know, were navigating the waters um, at the time that this advocate interview came out. It just it meant so much to so many people to see Versace and and his partner in this. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's that's really well said um because even now you know we have celebrities coming out but seeming to live very chaste lives or whatever um you know no and no one really presses them on 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 that ever because we're you know it's 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 their business or whatever you know so i think that like 20 years ago 20 plus years ago uh, a really famous guy saying not yes i'm i'm gay in theory but here you know like you said in practice here here's my partner i think um we still crave that because there's still you know again there are layers to coming out and saying i'm gay is one thing introducing your partner or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or whoever to your family to your friends thus implying yes we have sex you know like and then and then you know and then it keeps going in concentric circles out you know so i think that um versace kind of breaking through one of those barriers all in one fell swoop, I think is, 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 uh, well, it's pretty important. Right. And then on the flip side of that, we have Jeff who's saying he's gay, but doing so with his face disguised in the hopes that like he, no one actually figures out that it's him saying that he's gay. Um, and also him talking about this other way in which he came out 
in effect to his coworkers by uh, intervening on behalf of this other gay soldier, you know, and saying he wished he hadn't. I mean, this is this is a really uh, crazy admission from. You know, I didn't watch the 48 hours footage myself. I'm sure it can be found online somewhere. Um, but I, so I don't know if Jeff Trail actually said this. And if he did, then maybe that whole code red with the soldier did happen. Um, Maureen does not talk about it in her book, but she does talk about the 48 hours special. So I feel like she would have mentioned it. Anyway, so he says this thing that I think is a fictional invention where he says, you know, if I could go back and do it again, I would not have saved that kid. Because then I, I could have stayed firmer in the closet. And that's just, I mean, it's a really complicated thing to admit in such a public forum. And um, it's it's really effective, I think. So, Well, yeah, also because, you know, coming out of the closet is good, it's important, whatever. But it's not always easy. And, it, in, you know, plenty of people regret it, you know, for various reasons. So um, that doesn't mean that they're, they'd be better off if they were in the closet. But, yeah, I think that's an important um, dynamic to 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 fo- to you know introduce into the the narrative, and then we come to the scene that you've mentioned um, a yeah. couple times as maybe being like one of the thesis statements of the show. And I I did talk to Finn about this scene and this one line that we're going to talk about. But you know, basically things come to a head with Jeff comes home and sees that Andrew has just like rifled through his apartment and trashed everything. Um, Andrew's eating Fruit Loops, something I can't watch anyone do after seeing Get Out in the same way. Um, and, you know, Jeff says, everything you gave me, it means nothing. I want my life back, my real life. My life is a soldier. You're a liar. You have no honor. Um, and before we get to that one line, Richard, uh, Andrew says, I was there for you. I saved you. And Jeff says, you destroyed me. Mm-hmm. And this is a, the show leaning into this dynamic of creator-destroyer which is the name we've already talked about the name of the penultimate episode of the season, but the contract is contrast is supposed to be between Andrew Kinnan as a destroyer and the various creators, be it Lee Miglin or Versace uh, or David Madsen, uh, who he um, destroyed in his life. So creators or destroyers and this idea of, Andrew's act of creation, which is sort of creating Jeff as Jeff's gay identity, or or at least introducing Jeff uh, more deeply to his gay identity, was an act of destruction, according to Jeff. And I just thought that that was um, an interesting thing. To yeah, there. no, it is interesting. And I think that, uh, you know, it's, it adds to the tragedy of it. That's like, well, no, obviously, if you're dragged into the gay world, and, and, and the, the, your entire experience of the gay world is framed by someone who was going to be a murderous you know sociopath well of course your experience would be somewhat negative or tainted or, or whatever you know and it's just so sad it's like well if he had just gotten out from under Je- uh, andrew you know maybe maybe things would have been different and i think that that's such a uh it's a recurring thing in this show that like the the, the, the real tragedy of these people who's like just could not get out of this orbit that they were stuck in and um little did they know how it would end obviously but um it just makes Andrew seem all that more malevolent. You know, he's like this black hole. And then we get this line reading. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And during Chris's reaction, where Jeff says, no one wants your love. Screams And it is just uh, an explosion. Yeah. Um, I mean, can you imagine that, that, hearing a worse thing? I mean, not like no, no one loves you. That's that's bad enough. But like, what? No. It's, it's worse. You're, you're, you're just so like, 
unworthy that like you're you're repellent like you know your affection like your love is 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 gross like it's just so chilling and like it's such an insult and not even an insult it goes past that it's such a reduction or like a complete annihilation of somebody um it is an annihilation of somebody you know yeah. and it's cruel and but the but the, but the the crazy thing about it in in the way that this show has especially this episode has set it up it's true you know like everyone's just being polite but like the, the love or what what he thinks is love that andrew is offering because it's not really love it's all it's all narcissistic it's all self-serving um what he thinks you know he's offering it it's 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 creepy and unsettling and but people are too polite or or sympathetic enough or whatever to 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 fully reject it you know um yeah and so obviously this has been you know Je- obviously jeff's feelings on this have been building and um and it just yeah it just comes out and i think it's a really bracing scene and i think i don't know if you agree with me I mean, this is kind of the origin story of a murderer anyway, like this episode and this scene. It's like, this is when he snapped. This was it. Because, I mean, the show goes pretty directly into setting up the murder um, that we see in, in well, that we saw in episode four. But um, I want to take a moment here to, we, we got a, um, we had a tweet from a listener saying sort of they thought we were, I don't know, talking around Darren Chris's performance or just not really pausing to admire it. Um, and I just want to make it very clear, I think, for both of us that we think, or I'll just speak for myself, I think what Darren Chris is doing with this role is extraordinary. It it has the unfortunate side effect of like me sometimes not wanting to spend any time with Andrew <laughs> because he's such like a frustrating and um, terrifying creature. But that's not a fault of Darren Chris's performance. I think that's almost like, you know, high praise of Darren Chris's performance. I think it, I think it, uh, Richard's right that this is like the pinnacle of that. And then f- going backwards in time, it gets easier to feel for Andrew. But, yes, um, yes, it does. Um, but no, you're, you're right. I mean, it's hard to talk about the performance because it's just, it's so, it's so thorough and sort of lived in that like, you know, it's hard to pick out little pieces of it. But like this episode, he gets this, you know, if, if this is the episode where we really see him at his creepiest, I mean, even creepier in a way than when he's killing people, which is kind of a crazy thing to say. But like, uh, you know, he does it. I think that maybe the airport scene, it's a little like, it's a little up maybe, but in these, in these darker, more, more bruising, you know, fights when, when Andrew's kind of veneer slips away a little bit, I think that Chris really modulates that well. Um, and also I wanted to say about that, about my, that, that line, the no one wants yeah. to love. Um, yeah. you could also look at that in a broader sense of a fear that many queer people have, either early in their coming out process or even in once they're out and living in the world that no one would be the stand in for like, you know, normal society or whatever, like that, that there's something repugnant about the way that you love. Um, And so I think as much as the show works in any kind of allegory or metaphor um, that, that, that could be seen as a big one for this show, you know, about um, this is about people dwelling in the margins um, in 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 many senses but uh and, and and one of those is that like the way that they you know 
love in the world is not the norm and not accepted by many people. And what that does to you psychologically is can be damaging. And, and many people can weather it just fine. But like, I just think it's an interesting way to look at a bigger thing that this show is saying, just all contained in one line. Yeah. American Crime Story colon No One Wants Your Love. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> A rough watch. Uh, we see, you know, um, Andrew. I think Tom Rob Smith was talking to you about this, but sort of like the way in which Andrew takes the gun is a way to lure Jeff over to David's apartment. So th- if this was all as premeditated um, as some people think it was, and like that, you know, he takes the gun so that Jeff will have to go over to David's apartment so he can kill him there and thus implicate David and trap him. That all seems like a little bit more calculated than some of these moments, which, you know, seem just very impulsive for Andrew. But, um, that, that's a common theory. Uh, you know, so we, we see the moments leading up to what we know will be a very brutal murder that we saw last week. And, um, and then we get that bookend that I talked about, which is, uh, a la rent uh jeff's jeff's parents just heard on the answering machine over and over again Mm -hmm. and uh it's yeah his sister has the baby and they're just like come on down to the hospital where are you yeah we love you yeah was that was that was that timeline accurate i guess it must have been right uh approximately yeah not i don't think like night of his sister well right again this is an episode that that makes up ties ties a lot of neat bows you know um but i don't really mind it when it when it works so effectively yeah so, so that is the end of the Don't Ask, Don't Tell episode, uh, which, yeah, I, I think it is the most issue-centric episode, but I don't mind it. I think Finn Whitrock is really great in it, and uh, it's nice to see the Versaces again. And, um, like, let's be honest, this is just, yeah. this is stuff you don't see on television much, even now. You know, really is like like yeah. the, like a full ep- hour long episode devoted to these kind of like intra gay like politics and 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 stuff. I think you know that's you know I'm glad the show is doing that. Yes, some you know as some people have said, it's unfortunate that it has has to be a sh- uh, you know in in the framework of a show about a crazy gay murderer. But like whatever, it, it, like it, it, I'm glad that the show decided to do to go this way rather than the more sort of easy sensational way. Like I, I respect that. Yeah, I agree. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about before we get to our interview with Finn Whitrock? Um, no. I mean, I anyone, any young listeners out there, uh, I know this show makes it seem like being gay is horrible. It, it, it Sometimes it is, but no, it's mostly great. Just go watch Adam Rippon skate. <laughs> as, a, as a palate yeah, cleanser. Nice. I feel like that's a good palate cleanser. <laughs> A nice palate cleanser. All right. Um, before you go watch Adam do his routine to some cold play, please do listen to our interview with Finn Rock. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval.
Terms apply. I want to start off by asking you, I think you were what, 13 or so at the time of the Versace murders. Did you have a sense of them at all at that time in your life? I didn't really. Uh, it kind of that kind of that kind of flew by me. You know, it's like in my mind, it sort of bookends between OJ and uh, Princess Di, <laughs> and that's just sort of right in the middle there. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, what's funny is like anyone that I talk to who's from Miami or really anywhere in Florida, no matter what age they were, it's they remember everything, and they remember weird, like very specific details. Um, so I, it's an interesting, like, uh, it's such a big deal to people down there, you know, because it happened in Miami and then kind of tracing the killer steps back. They, um, it's very vivid in people's minds that are from that area. When, you know, when the project first floated up on your radar, you know, what was your first thought about it? Did you read up on it? Like, how did that go? Yeah, I mean, you know, the first thought was like, this was, I guess, a first uh, uh, first came my way about, it was like last summer. Um, and I remember reading it and being like, Oh, but like, don't ask, don't tell. That's so dated. You know, that's, I don't know if people are going to be able to relate to that. <laughs> and then like a week later, there was like the, the transgender military Trump fan. Right. And it was suddenly like, Oh wow, this is, you know, how, how, how many steps we take forward and how many take, we take back. Yeah. Um, so suddenly I was like, I was kind of, uh, kind of examine the whole story in that way of like how, how relevant is this still and how sadly it is so much of it is still relevant. Um, and I, I don't know, I was just, I, I remember reading the episodes and just being really enthralled by the, the structure of them and how Tom, um, worked that kind of reverse narrative in such a interesting way. Um, and in a, in a really unusual way to tell this kind of story, um, and I really like this. I really like the the structure that everyone, you know, that we have like these through lines of Versace and Kuman, and of course, but then every episode kind of highlights its own character, mostly its own victim uh, right. of of the madman, um, and kind of they, each episode kind of stands alone in its own way while weaving into the whole. I thought it was just really smart. Um, ready to put a story together. And so that's part of what drew me to it. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about that exactly in terms of it's so jarring to, to watch your character die so brutally in episode four and then to see him alive and well and, and thriving in episode five. Uh, what In what order did you film everything? <laughs> in every order. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I literally, I had to, I took the scripts apart. I, I got uh, I, six also I show up in, um, I took them all apart and I put them in chronological order because I couldn't keep it straight. So sometimes I wouldn't even know which episode I was in because there you'll see like in five, you know, a lot of those shots are in the exact same, but from a different angle as they were from episode four, you know? Um, so we'd like be recreating my death scene in pretty different days. And I would just like have to kind of give up knowing which episode I was in. Um, so I, but I did, I did die pretty early in the filming and then had to kind of go back and recreate myself. Um, so yeah, it was, it was all over the place, but that kind of, that kind of fed the delirium of it. I think. 
Um, I I don't know if this is a ghoulish question to ask you, but how do they go about making your, I'm going to assume, prosthetic head that we see sort of bashed oh. in? How did that happen? Yeah. It was a big process. I was. It was one of the most, I mean, Ryan Murphy's made me do a lot of uh, crazy makeup um, in my time with him. Yeah. Uh, and this was maybe took the cake because I was blind uh, in one eye because of this makeup. I, I, it was like about, about a two or three hour process and, uh, they had to cover one eye because he's the, you know, the hammer bashes him in so terribly. Um, so I kind of, and, and I, <laughs> I kind of thought, uh, they were going to use a dummy for most of it, but I, I ended up sitting on the lying on the floor, um, quite a few hours, uh, during many days. Really? <laughs> it feels like it was probably only three days. Uh, but I actually, they actually rolled me up too in the rug because they couldn't really do that with the dummy very well. So, uh, those scenes like when I'm rolled up in the corner, that was really me. Uh, so it was intense, <laughs> it was intense, uh, makeup process, but then they did also make this very terrifyingly accurate dummy of my, of my whole body. It's like, it's exactly, a, it's a dead fin, uh, with <laughs> a bashed in face and it's my size and weight and it, the face looks incredibly like me it's very eerie uh so they would use that whenever kind of the body was sort of in the background or out of focus um they do an incredible job job there uh but it was a little it was a little unnerving to be either dead that long or seeing your body <laughs> dead I can, that long. i can imagine were there any though like light-hearted practical hijinks with the dead the dead fin body or is it strictly business oh sure yeah <laughs> oh darren would always be like uh, as he's rolling me up in the carpet like aren't you glad you went to juilliard <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh oh. darren was actually darren is great uh that way he's really uh you wouldn't think it but it's sort of a a very buoyant, lighthearted presence on set. I think it's sort of how he survived yeah, in those dark waters. You kind of, you have a playful side that you have to kind of maintain. Otherwise you go crazy. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you what your relationship was like working with him, because that is hard to work with someone who has to be such a, a, a monster sort of once the cameras start rolling. Yeah. Is it just night and day when the cameras stop? He's just a completely different animal. Uh, kind of, yeah, from what I saw. But I, I think it's strategic. I mean, he, I think he kind of, like I said, like he kind of had to maintain uh, a kind of playfulness to him. Um, and some actors wouldn't, and like, I, and that was what I was scared of, is that he would just be like in dark command and land forever. But um, he was, he's so nimble as an actor. It's really, it's really impressive how he's able to kind of jump back and forth and, um, go into that dark place um, in a second and then pop out of it. Um, and uh, yeah, it was really thrilling to watch. And scary as an, as, a, as an actor, you know, as a character, like to see him do that is a very, it, it helped me, you know, because I think that's part of the thing about Andrew is that you didn't know which Andrew you were going to get on any given day, you know. Right. It's like uh, it a scary chameleon, so yeah. Well, you you mentioned some of the uh, extreme makeup that Ryan Murphy has put you in the in in the past. When you sort of become part of the Ryan Murphy stable, do you audition for projects, or does he just call you and say, "Finn, I have something new for you. It's this. Please come." Um, generally, he it's 
generally it's that. Yeah. It's once you're in, I mean, I, and that's happened to me since the normal heart. I, I did audition for that. And then since then it's sort of been, when he's had something up my alley or something he thinks will challenge me, he sort of sends it my way. Um, um I think, so, you know, sometimes you do audition, but, uh, I, he's been very generous with me. And, and the normal heart is obviously like a very grounded, very, um, very upsetting, um, and uplifting project, but coming from working on American Horror Story with Ryan and then doing something this, which is based on a true story, sort of what, what are the differences between the extremes of American Horror Story and then trying to portray a real life person like Jeff Trail? Yeah, that's interesting. Well, it's funny because I, I, I actually did, like I, uh, it's sort of, it's different, but it's not, you know? Uh, it's like a lot of the same, a lot of the same team, um, the same kind of general vibe on set, except that you're trying, like, I mean, Horror Story has so many, um, it, it sort of embraces everyone's imagination and you can kind of, every every department gets to kind of really let loose and stretch their muscles and uh, um, just uh, swing for the fences, you know, really make bold choices. And with this, it was a little more, because of the nature of the sh- of the story, and the preciousness of it and not wanting to get anything wrong. I think people just tread a little more carefully. It was just like, is this the right choice? Is this the right direction? Um, This has helped the overall story. You know, it's just, I think people use the same talents, but just, just a little more, um, watch their steps a little closer, which is good. I think it makes it a little more precious. Yeah. I mean, there's, your portrait of Jeff Trail is obviously like a very loving and very complimentary one. He's a he's a great guy, both in real life and as you portray him. His family also is sort of a very important part of of your episode. Did mm-hmm. you talk to the Trail family at all, and and what is it like knowing sort of that they're out there and might see this performance? I know, I, no, I couldn't get a hold of them, um, and it, I think it might have been just too sensitive. Um, but I did get this amazing footage, um, of him that, you know, that he does that interview in that one scene right. that really, that tape really exists. And so that was sort of my, um, that was sort of my Bible. I would just sort of watch that and listen to that every day. Um, and, and that, yeah, so that was the biggest part of my research. And then, and then the book to kind of fill it, filled in all the other gaps I needed to know. Um, but again, too, there's a lot, there is mystery with him too. There was, a lot they don't know about their relationship and uh, were there drugs involved and lots, lots of sort of open questions that we kind of had to answer for ourselves. Um, but it's always sensitive, you know, when you're dealing with that real people that are like whose family is still alive, you know, you don't want to overstep. Yeah, absolutely. Of course you've got this, this, Great line in episode five that sort of I gasped when you said it. I I was like shocked and upset, and then it, I like I sort of took it as uh, almost a thesis for the show. And you sort of shout at Andrew, uh, "Nobody wants your love," and it's like this just referendum on his character. Like, what was that like doing that scene? And did you talk to Tom about it at all? And and how'd that go? Yeah, that was a t- that was a that was a big scene. It was uh, um. A lot of, lot of, yeah. It was like a lot of deciding what, how hot to make things. Is this, is this a screaming match, or are they really just going for the jugular here? Um, 
I, I think that moment was sort of a continual buildup. It's, you know, it's never something Jeff would say, you know, he's like the model of politeness. Um, but I think Andrew kind of keeps poking him and poking him in just the right places. Um, and he's, and a lot of that, that anger is also just mad at himself for the way his life turned out and the disappointments of, uh, where he thought he would be and where he actually is. Um, and so he not always fairly blames Andrew, I think for helping him come out and helping him discover himself because that actually like destroyed his career. Um, so there's also, I think in that, in that a lot of self hatred, um, self disappointment. Um, but it is, yeah, I know that the, the line is sort of, uh, sums up, his uh his tragic uh standing in the world i want to ask you there there are a number of of gay actors in your cast and some straight and i believe you are a straight man and i i, I was wondering if you found any challenges in accessing sort of the fear and trauma of the closet uh and if you had any resources to help on that front uh yes <laughs> Thankfully, there is no lack of older gay men um, in, the, in this in this world. Um, so I actually did talk to some some guys, especially I was, I was mostly curious of like guys who are out now but are maybe in their you know forties fifties like lived through this period um, when they when they weren't and what you know just what life was like. Um, and it is amazing how different things were even twenty years ago. Um, and yeah, I mean, it just takes a small amount of imagination to put yourself in shoes like that. I mean, obviously besides my sexuality, like I could be Jeff trail, you know, it's like, I didn't have to like transform too hard to like put myself in those shoes, you know, just sort of replace it with something else. Um, but I, 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 yeah, I've been, Ryan's really, I think a lot of, a lot of what he's saying in the show is actually is personal for him and for a lot of men. Um, and I think that's what Jeff trail kind of emulates or signifies is like a very, very upstanding all American, like perfect, you know, like he did everything right. And he just had this one, this one dark secret that, um, that was not compatible with the world that he was entering into. Um, and that's sort of what ate him. And I, and I think, I don't know, I think a, a lot of men, older gay men, sort of see that character as the thing, you know, like the thing you could have been, like the, the, the path you could have gone down if things didn't go differently. You know? Yeah. I was wondering then, you know, I'm not trying to unearth um, your deepest, darkest secrets or anything like that, but is there something about... Just relationship with the military or the code of conduct, this this very vital part of his character that you can transplant to stand in for something else in your life, like your acting craft or, or anything like that? Yes and no. I mean, uh, you know, what I do is so, so embraces uh, your own expression and, you know, being free and being creative and that is that is the opposite of the military. I mean, you are supposed to, you know, you, uh, you have to live by a code and you have to adapt yourself, which is, um, which she genuinely loved, and and I think he genuinely had a 
a feeling of wanting to defend this country and a real uh, national pride. Uh, but his but his uh, country didn't wasn't there for him, you know, when yeah. he did it. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's different. Like I'm doing this military movie right now. Uh, it's down in New Orleans called Semper Fi, and it's like uh, it, it is a <laughs> it's a specific, unique world. Um, and you can only unless you're in it, you can only. Uh, it's only so far you can really go to understand it. Yeah. Um, and my last question, and a, a lot of um, the your your fellow actors in the project have talked to me about this about some sort of very p- deep and personal connection that they found with this project, um, either because working in the acting world, you meet a lot of um, gay men and women who did live through this time in the '90s, or just in their personal life. Do you how ha- do you feel like you have a, a personal connection to this story that you're telling here? I grew up in a very kind of in a, a theatrical household. I, I was born in a, in like around the theater company in Massachusetts. And I actually, when I was a kid, my, my parents were like, they were kind of, they were kind of a, <laughs> ahead of others. They were, they were like boys can marry and girls can marry and boys can marry boys and girls can marry girls. It's all okay. So I kind of grew up not quite understanding that the homophobia um, and I actually, when I was a kid, had uh, these two men that my, my dad's really good friends died of AIDS. Um, and so, I don't know, I've, I've never, there was never like a learning curve for me in that way. It was sort of always acceptable since I was a kid. Um, so it makes it even more tragic for me to like sort of realize how much, uh, how, how much those those men and like I really had to, and women, of course, had to fight against the world and uh what a haven a place like the place i grew up was for them mm-hmm. um and that's why so many people come to the arts i think is because they feel it's uh, <clears throat> a much more embracing family than maybe the one that they knew yeah well thank you so much for taking the time i know you're on set and uh it's always busy so i really Absolutely. appreciate it and um i'm excited for everyone to see all these episodes so thanks again thanks i am too so richard we are one week off of your debut as a novelist that's Uh, right is is the world just an entirely different place is your book sold out everywhere can people still buy it i'm sure there are some copies on the black market available no it's available in, in most big bookstores and obviously online it's called all we can do is wait i am told that the strand in new york did sell out of copies but i don't know how many they had um. So yeah, and hey, there's a gay character in that who, well, actually, some sad things happened to him. So, <laughs> oh well, we're we're doomed. What can I say? We're doing fine. We're doing fine. Um. So yeah, please do uh, go pick up a copy of Richard's new book or read uh, his essay on Adam Rippon over on VF.com. I'm Joan Robinson. You can also find me on VF.com. And read, writing. and you, we should they should read your essay on Adam Rippon. <laughs> And then, you know, yeah, just live in this rip-on world together. Uh, you can also write, uh, find me writing about, once again, Black Panther, which comes out uh, to a wider audience this weekend. Um, until then, this episode was engineered by Danielle Roth, produced by Dave Gonzalez, with editorial support from Katie Rich. And we will see you next week.
Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run Through with Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to The Run Through with Vogue wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 